And now we continue with part two of MOAC Mall Holdings LLC v. Transform Holdco LLC. We begin with part three of the opinion. With respect to the question that we granted certiorari to consider, whether Section 363M is a jurisdictional provision, our answer is no, for the reasons that follow. Section A. Congressional statutes are replete with directions to litigants that serve as preconditions to relief. Filing deadlines are classic examples. So are preconditions to suit, like exhaustion requirements. So too are statutory limitations on coverage or on a statute's scope, such as the elements of a plaintiff's claim for relief. Congress can, if it chooses, make compliance with such rules important and mandatory. But knowing that much does not, in itself, make such rules jurisdictional. The jurisdictional label is significant because it carries with it unique and sometimes severe consequences. An unmet jurisdictional precondition deprives courts of power to hear the case, thus requiring immediate dismissal. And jurisdictional rules are impervious to excuses like waiver or forfeiture. Courts must also raise and enforce them sua sponte. This case exemplifies why the distinction between non-jurisdictional and jurisdictional preconditions matters. In light of Transform's belated invocation of Section 363M, the District Court stated that, if ever there were an appropriate situation for the application of judicial estoppel, this would be it. But not even such egregious conduct by a litigant could permit the application of judicial estoppel as against a jurisdictional rule. In view of these consequences and our past, sometimes loose, use of the word jurisdiction, we have endeavored to bring some discipline to this area. We have clarified that jurisdictional rules pertain to the power of the court rather than to the rights or obligations of the parties. And we only treat a provision as jurisdictional if Congress clearly states as much. This clear statement rule implements Congress's likely intent regarding whether non-compliance with the precondition governs a court's adjudicatory capacity. We have reasoned that Congress ordinarily enacts preconditions to facilitate the fair and orderly disposition of litigation and would not heedlessly give those same rules an unusual character that threatens to upend that orderly progress. That said, Congress need not use magic words to convey its intent that a statutory precondition be treated as jurisdictional. Traditional tools of statutory construction can reveal a clear statement, but the statement must indeed be clear. It is insufficient that a jurisdictional reading is plausible, or even better than non-jurisdictional alternatives. Section B. We see nothing in Section 363M's limits that purports to govern a court's adjudicatory capacity. Start with the text. 
far from addressing a court's authority or referring in any way to the jurisdiction of the district courts. Section 363M takes as a given the exercise of judicial power over any authorization under Section 363B or Section 363C, hereinafter called covered authorizations. Indeed, Section 363M plainly contemplates that appellate courts might reverse or modify any covered authorization with a proviso. Sometimes the court's exercise of power may not accomplish all the appellant wishes because the reversal or modification of a covered authorization may not affect the validity of a sale or lease under such authorization to a good-faith purchaser or lessee under certain prescribed circumstances. Thus, the provision consists of a caveated constraint on the effect of a reversal or modification, and the caveat is itself caveated. Section 363M's constraints are simply inapplicable where the sale or lease was made to a bad-faith purchaser or lessee, or if the sale or lease is stayed pending appeal, or, for that matter, if the court does something other than reverse or modify the authorization. This is not the stuff of which clear statements are made. Indeed, we treated similar statutory traits as significant evidence of non-jurisdictional status in Reed Elsevier. In Reed Elsevier, this court considered a Copyright Act provision that, with certain exceptions, required copyright infringement plaintiffs to show, as a condition to suit, that the work at issue had been registered. We found that the provision was non-jurisdictional and thought it key that the provision expressly envisioned courts adjudicating some claims even absent registration since it would have been at least unusual to ascribe jurisdictional significance to a condition subject to these sorts of exceptions. Similarly, given Section 363M's clear expectation that courts will exercise jurisdiction over a covered authorization, it is surely permissible to read its text as merely cloaking certain good-faith purchasers or lessees with a targeted protection of their newly acquired property interest, applicable even when an appellate court properly exercises jurisdiction. In other words, Section 363M reads like a statutory limitation that is tied in some instances to the need for a party to take certain procedural steps at certain specified times. Here, seeking a stay. And we certainly cannot say that Section 363M's jurisdictional nature is clear ex visceribus verborum, as we once did of a statutory provision directing that no court shall have jurisdiction over a covered action. Statutory context further clinches the case. Congress separated Section 363M from the code provisions that recognize federal court's jurisdiction over bankruptcy matters. And 363M does not contain any clear tie to the code's 
plainly jurisdictional provisions, nor does the Code lack for examples of such ties. Consider 11 U.S.C. Section 305C, which directs that certain judicial orders are not reviewable by appeal or otherwise by the Court of Appeals under Section 158D, the Code provision that recognizes the Courts of Appeals jurisdiction in bankruptcy matters. It also does not suffice that Section 363M issues directions, as Transform occasionally intimates. We routinely hold that congressional commands are non-jurisdictional, despite emphatic directives. Transform seems to ignore the possibility that Section 363M's particular statutory limitations could be important directives and yet not jurisdictional. But it is hardly clear to us that Section 363M's commands do anything more than that. Section C. Transform offers two creative retorts neither of which excavates a clear statement from Section 363M's unassuming text. 1. Transform insists that Section 363B sales of estate assets must proceed under a court's in-rem jurisdiction and that the courts can only exercise in-rem jurisdiction with respect to a res over which they have actual or constructive control. Appealing to the traditional principles of in-rem jurisdiction, transform reasons that the transfer of a res to a good-faith purchaser removes it from the bankruptcy estate and so from the court's in-rem jurisdiction over the estate, and it thus concludes that Section 363M is jurisdictional because it operates to ensure that, absent a stay, courts cannot disturb a transfer to a good-faith purchaser, thereby confirming the traditional in-rem truth that the bankruptcy court cannot reach the rees and thus has no basis for the exercise of in-rem jurisdiction over it. This argument teeters on a contorted framing of contested general background principles rather than Section 363M's text and context. Moreover, even setting aside MOAC's credible retort that traditional in-rem jurisdiction did not necessarily cease when the Rees left a court's custody. Transform's contentions about Section 363M's relationship to traditional in-rem jurisdiction merely offer a reason to think Congress intended Section 363M to be jurisdictional. That, without more, is not enough. Transform does not deny the paucity of textual or contextual clues indicating a clear statement of jurisdictional intent. And whatever else one might say about Transform's clear statement case, it certainly has not shown that Section 363M's supposed alignment with allegedly pre-existing jurisdictional truths is so powerful that it nullifies these otherwise compelling non-jurisdictional inferences. 
Section 363M's operation further derails this bank-shot argument. Transform's assertion is that Section 363M is jurisdictional because it confirms a traditional truth that bankruptcy courts exercising in-rem jurisdiction cannot touch a res that is transferred out of the estate. But that sits uncomfortably with Section 363M's express contemplation that courts can touch and affect the validity of certain sales or leases, for example, those made to bad-faith purchasers, due to reversals or modifications of covered authorizations, even though the property concerned has left the estate. Consequently, even if Section 363M mirrors traditional in-rem jurisdiction, it does not seem to reflect what Transform wishes to see. What is more, to the extent that a lower court can act with respect to the Rees at all, surely it can only do so while exercising congressionally conferred jurisdiction. Applied here, that principle puts transform on the horns of a dilemma. If a court, consistent with Section 363M, issues a judgment affecting a consummated sales validity that draws on any in-rem jurisdiction the code confers in Section 1334, that conferral authorizes the exercise of in-rem power with respect to a res that has left the estate. Section 363M could hardly confirm a supposed traditional truth that its concept of jurisdiction rejects. But if that hypothetical judgment draws on a non-in-rem source of jurisdiction, then Section 363M's power source is even further disconnected from Transform's contested claims about traditional in-rem jurisdiction. Either way, Section 363M tells a jurisdictional tale inconsistent with the one Transform needs. In the end, then, Transform's claims about traditional in-rem jurisdiction are red herrings. Section 363M is what matters, and Congress has not clearly stated that the provision is a limit on judicial power, rather than a mere restriction on the effects of a valid exercise of that power when a party successfully appeals a covered authorization. 2. Transform's second major salvo fares no better, it points to former Federal Rule of Bankruptcy Procedure 805, which was promulgated in 1976 and characterizes that rule as declaratory of a historic practice in which some appellate courts dismissed appeals challenging the validity of a consummated sale without considering the merits, which transform equates with jurisdictional treatment. Transform vigorously maintains that Congress fully transplanted Rule 805 into Section 
363M, and that section 363M therefore imbibed the jurisdictional character that Rule 805 incorporated from the historic practice. This argument relies on a supposed pre-1976 lower court jurisdictional consensus that Rule 805 formalized and Congress then built into Section 363M. But transform trips over the first hurdle. Rule 805's supposedly jurisdictional character. We rejected this sort of use of old lower court cases in Bockler because almost all of those lower court cases predated this court's effort to bring some discipline to the use of the term jurisdictional. The facts here are even worse for transform. Every case it cites to prove that Rule 805 was jurisdictional predates Section 363M's initial 1978 enactment and thus long predates our modern efforts on jurisdictional nomenclature. If numerous recent lower court opinions, some as recent as 2005, treating the provision at issue as jurisdictional were not enough in Reed Elsevier, transforms weaker proffer will not do. Nothing in transforms creative arguments in this case persuades us that Section 363M is jurisdictional under our clear statement precedents. Because the Second Circuit's judgment rested on the mistaken belief that Section 363M is jurisdictional, we vacate that judgment and remand the case for further proceedings consistent with this opinion. It is so ordered. We've come to the end of the opinion. Until next episode, thanks for listening to What SCOTUS Wrote Us.